0: Snuff production. From skulls to statues, there's a growing number of stolen artefacts going back to their rightful owners, Rihanna Patrick.
1: Yeah, in today's briefing we'll find out why that's happening and we'll also find out about some of those items that Australian museums have had to give back.
2: 330-odd pieces of porcelain from a shipwreck returned to Indonesia in August. Objects returned to Peru, Iran, Pakistan, Philippines, Mexico, just in recent years.
0: Wow, that is quite a list. So, it's going to be an interesting briefing. We're talking about giving back stolen artefacts and also why there's more looting going on than ever, still, in some parts of the world. That is the briefing today. First, here are the headlines. It is Friday, October 7th.
1: Brittany Higgins has faced cross-examination in the Bruce Lehman rape trial in the ACT.
0: Yeah, under questioning from the defence barrister, the court heard how the former Liberal Party staffer Brittany Higgins secretly recorded a conversation with then-Cabinet Minister Michaelia Cash about her alleged rape. She also said that she'd never expected her accused rapist to be named or that police would prosecute the case.
1: The courts also heard a recording showing Brittany Higgins and her partner, David Shiraz, telling Lisa Wilkinson and her project producer that they wanted the story to be broadcast at the start of the sitting week.
0: And Brittany Higgins also told the court that the journalist, Samantha Maiden and Lisa Wilkinson, were fighting each other over the release of their stories so that come Walkley's time, who could claim what? So she also said it became not even about me, it became about them.
1: Yes, she'll face further questioning today when the trial resumes and Bruce Lehman has pleaded not guilty to allegedly sexually assaulting his former colleague in Parliament House in March 2019.
0: And Just a warning, you might find this next story distressing. There's been a massacre in a Thai daycare centre, killing 38 people, 22 of them children. We have received a report. We are checking the motive. We know that he was a policeman. He might have had personal issues.
1: Prime Minister Payut Chanoche there, and it's understood the attacker was picking up his child after being in court earlier that day.
0: Yeah, he shot four or five staff, and then went on a stabbing spree, killing children some as young as two years old. Then he shot dead his wife and child at their home before turning the weapon on himself.
1: Yeah, it's understood the man was a former police officer who was sacked last year for drug offences, and it's the deadliest massacre in Thailand's history.
0: Sydney passed a wet milestone yesterday, making this year the wettest ever since records began over 160 years ago. The city had around 100 millimetres of rain yesterday, which is more than it usually gets in a month at this time of year. And that meant it passed a total of 2.2 metres, and it's only October, partway through this third La Nina.
1: And there's more heavy rain coming in the next few days as well, with a, a risk of flooding across much of eastern Australia.
0: Yeah, there's 55 flood warnings in place in New South Wales uh, and 14 of them are at watch and act in inland areas. So it just keeps on coming down more than was even forecast.
1: Fraudster Melissa Caddick's $2 million jewellery collection is set to be sold by the court-appointed receivers of her estate.
0: Yeah, I mean, that would be an interesting purchase. Um, As well as her jewellery, they're going to be selling um, her clothes. She had some pretty expensive clothes with labels like Christian Dior, Valentino, Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Colette Dinnigan, as well as a ball gown worth $14,000 that she wore to a fundraiser.
1: Yeah, and Caddick had stolen more than $23 million from friends and family who thought she was investing their money in shares uh, and a shoe containing Caddick's partial remains washed up on a beach on the New South Wales south coast in February last year.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on here. They're, they're trying to sell her house um, and now her clothes and her jewellery. I mean, I wonder who's going who's gonna to buy it. It's a pretty weird purchase. Um, there's also an inquest into her Uh, presumed death um, going on it's going to resume next month all right well speaking of remains we're about to talk about stolen artifacts All right, let's get into our briefing on stolen artefacts being given back to their traditional owners. And Rihanna, this is something you've got a really deep interest in.
1: Yeah, I love me some archaeology and I also love knowing what's happening in the antiquities trade as well. And when this story came up, I thought, we've got to go there.
0: (laughs) All right, well, we've found an amazing expert, Dr. Craig Barker. He's an archaeologist and he's also the manager of public education and public programs at the Chowchak Chow Wing Museum at Sydney Uni. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Is it a relatively recent development that Western countries have started returning artefacts to their traditional owners?
2: It's not so much a recent development, but what you're getting is a really gradual and steady increase in the numbers of countries that are prosecuting for the return of cultural artifacts. And this is actually being driven by a number of different factors. And obviously, it's going to vary from country to country and culture to culture. And a particular legislative engagement. But you've got a number of countries that have established authorities to track down stolen and looted artworks and ancient objects. And this is particularly the case of uh, Italy, Turkey, Greece, Cambodia. And they've established memorandums of understandings and other legal arrangements with countries such as the United States of America in particular, Switzerland, which is where um, the art market has seen a lot of the illegal items travel through and other places, and this includes Australia. You've obviously had increased calls for cultural material that have a community significance to be returned. And this is particularly the case for First Nation cultures So we've seen it in Australia with the return of particularly human remains, but also cultural objects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And this is part of a much broader trend towards community consultation within museums. It's being led at the moment by First Nations, but I think increasingly you'll see other countries trying to have more of a voice in how museums are operated. And then leading on to that, museums and cultural institutions and private collectors themselves realising that there's actually a reckoning coming and we need to be more transparent with records of acquisitions, paper trails. And as more and more collections are being made accessible online, it means that you're getting researchers being able to match objects with stolen items. The Benin Bronzes are a really good example of this, but there's been a real number of high-profile cases, such as the Getty Museum and the Met in New York, around about 15 or 20 years ago where, you know, you've even had cases of curators being put on trial. So the sector has improved its game, but it still has a long way to go.
0: So, Craig, you said there's an increasing trend towards handing back these artefacts. When did it really kick off?
2: Look, really, it's a, a phenomenon since the end of the Second World War where you even had museums selling objects back to their country of origin. But it's the 1970s which you see the key change and indeed 1970 itself. UNESCO passed a convention and it's titled The Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and preventing the explicit import, export, and transfer of ownership of cultural property. And what that means is that now all countries that have ratified it, and that's pretty much every country on earth, including Australia, means objects can only travel from one country to another with the express permission of the host country. And that means it's usually only for exhibition or for research or conservation. From an archaeological perspective, any item excavated since 1970 is legally the property of the country in which it's found.
1: So, Craig, I mean, what are some of those high-profile handovers?
2: The concept of repatriation or indeed calls for a repatriation of objects, they normally fall into sort of one of four categories. One is that community relationship building, such as with First Nations communities. So, we've seen cases where even internally things like the human skeletal remains from Mungo being returned to community, so it's not even necessarily from Uh, one country to another, but often internal. You've got examples of items that have been clearly looted since 1970, and this is the case of uh, objects from India or from Cambodia and Italy. So perhaps the most high-profile case from an Australian experience is the National Gallery of Australia a number of years ago returning to India, uh, Hindu sculpture that was clearly looted from a temple in the early 1980s. You've also then got examples of um, the Benin bronzes from uh, West Africa. These are items that were removed prior to 1970, but they're so clearly looted that the ethical choice to return them is absolutely crystal clear. And then you had calls for items of national significance. So the Parthenon marbles, where Greece has been prosecuting the British Museum to return them very heavily for a number of decades now. Egypt's also been pushing for the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum and the Buster Nefertiti in Berlin to be returned. These particular cases are less successful but have gained massive international profile. So it really does depend upon what category you're seeing the call for. But um, you've had countries like Cambodia, countries like Italy in particular, really successfully campaigning for looted objects
1: Craig, you know, off the back of that, I mean, where's Australia in all of this? I mean, do we hold artefacts that we shouldn't?
2: Yes, we most definitely do. Just in recent years, 330-odd pieces of porcelain from a shipwreck returned to Indonesia in August. Objects returned to Peru, Iran, Pakistan, Philippines, Mexico, just in recent years. So we have had success. The Art Gallery of South Australia returned a 16th century idol to India in 2019 so Australia's official line is that when we become aware of material that has been looted recourse is seeked to find ways to return them to their rightful owners.
0: Craig when that awareness comes does it come with a bit of embarrassment I mean it looks kind of dodgy and when you when you give us that long list of stuff we've had to hand back it, it doesn't shine a very positive light on us.
2: No, well, it's it's worthwhile bearing in mind that you know we are actually only a relatively small part of a much 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 larger marketplace, and where I think a number of cultural institutions have fallen into the trap, and indeed private collectors as well, and this was certainly the case uh, with the National Gallery of Australia in recent years with the dancing shiva statue that was purchased in 2008 and it was purchased for $5 million. You need to bear in mind that a lot of these objects are going for incredibly high sums of money. But what's happening is that in some cases there's falsified documents associated with them. So the emphasis really should be on cultural institutions and on private collectors doing due diligence. And that means that nothing should be acquired unless there is a clear line of proof that the object is legally allowable for sale and for acquisition. I know the institution I work for, we have a very rigorous process. And this is in large part because, as you said, Tom, um, the embarrassment factor that if it gets leaked into the media, an organisation such as the National Gallery of Australia spent a lot of time trying to repair the reputational damage brought on by the acquisition of that piece from India.
1: Well, Craig, while it sounds like things are getting better and there are these things in place to stop that from happening and from institutions and, um, and museums alike finding that they have things that they shouldn't, I mean, what does the effect of war and political upheaval have on the black antiquities market? And I mean, what is currently happening in that space?
2: Yeah, Ray, that's a very good point. And I think that often we tend to think of the looting of cultural antiquities as being something historic. And it's worthwhile bearing in mind that archaeology, museums themselves, are colonial institutions. They're born out of an idea, and indeed born out of you know, very, very racist ideas, of understanding ancient cultures by collecting them all together into one place. So what you've seen is some museums, and notably one in London, rebranding themselves as sort of world- Museums and world cultural institutions, but more broadly, there's been a real change across the sector globally in terms of museums attempting to be far more transparent. And I think that that's one of the key things because we actually, believe it or not, the 21st century live in an era where there's more looting taking place than at any other time in history. In many ways, it's a byproduct of that 1970s convention because by Restricting the number of objects that could be legally bought and sold, what that did was to put the price of the art market through the roof, and the value of these objects really skyrocketed. So what you're getting is a number of war-torn countries, Syria and Libya in particular in recent years, but even following the financial crisis of 2008, you saw looting activities in countries such as Greece. Um, If you remember back to the US invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the National Museum in Baghdad being looted, these are all examples of items that are being picked up on the illegal art market. And now what you've got also is a real international problem in that you're getting countries like Australia and the United States attempting to do the right thing. But there are many parts of the Middle East, China and Russia, where private collectors are completely ignoring all of those conventions. And another big problem has been the lower end of the scale of looting and of um, the marketplace. So, social media has actually been a massive problem in this case. There's a number of organisations involved with tracking down stolen works. Interpol, obviously, but uh, one called the ATAR Project or also the Chasing Aphrodite website. And they're following groups, ATAR in particular, they're following hundreds of groups of uh, trafficking and looting on social media, operating quite openly on Facebook. They've claimed quite recently that these various Groups that are active on social media have a collective membership of more than 12 million people. So that's a lot of objects being (sighs) transferred backwards and forwards. So what I want, I think, our listeners to bear in mind is that public awareness is really key to this. If you are a collector, you are able to collect and you are able to do it legally. But do not, under any circumstances, ever purchase antiquities on social media sites. You are ultimately only funding terrorism funding illegal organisations. Even if you're purchasing from legitimate sources, request paper trails because, you know, we are aware of forgeries and and fakes, and this is where institutions have been caught out in the past. If you can't follow that paper trail back to 1970, do not under any circumstances purchase and indeed let government authorities know of these problems as well. I think that the key is for us to lead... The way the private collectors think about this engagement by the museums themselves saying, you know what? Returning an object to a community is a positive for everybody and that includes the museum. It's all about stamping out that black market because it's worth billions of dollars.
0: All right, that was archaeologist Dr Craig Barker. Uh, many fascinating things there, Rihanna. One, that in some parts of the world the problem's worse than ever while other parts of the world, uh, I guess, are coming to a more of a, an ethical reckoning.
1: Yeah, and I think when we think about um, this kind of this black market in antiquities, we think it's the millions of dollars of things, those really high-priced items. But as you heard there, Craig talked about those lower-end items where it's you and me out, we're tourists somewhere and we want to take something back with us. And if we're not asking about where those artefacts or where those items have come from, we could be part of the problem that they've been chipped off a Greek temple. They've been taken out of a Roman burial mound. So I think it's always important to ask those questions of where has this stuff come from and is it ethical? All
0: right, that is it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Jamila Risby will be in your feed tomorrow with the weekend briefing. Jamila, who are you speaking to this week?
1: This one's a big one. On Saturday, I will be chatting to Treasurer Jim Chalmers and he is, in just about three weeks, delivering his first budget. Now, I've known Jim since we were young staffers in the Rudd and the Gillard governments together, so I was never going to be able to do the sort of hardcore Sarah Ferguson on 7.30 tough questions interview. So I've tried to do something else, which I hope people find really interesting. I certainly did. I tried to get to the bottom of how this Treasurer thinks – what his values are, what drives him, who he talks to, what he cares about. And by doing that, we covered everything from cost of living to climate change to why on Budget Night politicians just talk about families and never talk about young people. Definitely one worth tuning in for.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, on the weekend briefing tomorrow. Get into that one. Uh, We'll be back next week uh, with your Monday to Friday briefing a big shout out to the hard-working team here at The Briefing that make this podcast what it is. Executive producer Dan Mullins, news producers Eleanor Harrison-Dengate, Brooke Lowther, our editor Matt Curry and our socials team Sarah Boll and Poppy Manzi. We'll catch you later. Listener.